back, everyone, to another episode of the Field Guide Podcast. I am your co-host, Nathan Drutz, your local extension educator for Stearns, Ben, and Morrison Counties. And with me, as always, is a man that goes by many different names, but we prefer to call him Mike, Mike Cruz from Houston, Fillmore Counties. How are you doing today, Mike? Fantastic, Nathan. How are you doing? All right. I mean, it's snowing outside, but it's supposed to be beautiful later this week, so that's uh, that's always a plus. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Mike, it sounds like today our our podcast here, we're going to be talking about conservation again. Uh, you know, this is going to be based off of what we talked about earlier with your father, Brad Cruz. Can you give us a quick recap on what it was that we talked to? Yeah, on the last episode, we talked to my dad in depth about a couple of different conservation approaches that he and his family had taken. Uh, the first one was his family switch from using a moldboard plow to a chisel plow. And then the second one was his approach to no-till agriculture and how it took him about 10 years uh, to feel really comfortable with it. Uh, we talked in depth not only about the practices, but then his reasons be behind doing it, which included both environmental and economics. Um, so yeah, we wanted to spend a little bit of the time today going to a little bit more depth about conservation in agriculture. All right. And with us to actually help expand and provide some context for many of those questions, we have with us our, our regional extension educator out of the Wilmar office, uh, Jody Deong Hughes. Do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Hi. Uh, yes. Happy to be here. I'm Jody. And well, I'm usually in the Wilmer office, but not for the last year. And so we have. Um, I work with farmers, helping them reduce their tillage, uh, reduce compaction, and kind of the physical sides of soil, and overall improve their health. And yeah, it's been doing that for 24 years now. 24. Okay, so you you brought up one thing that I that I kind of want to stress right off the bat here, Jody. You mentioned health and soil health. Um, there's a lot of different benefits that we get from conservation, right? And I'm just kind of Kind of curious your thoughts on what are the most important benefits? What are the things that you highlight in your work when it comes to the benefits of actually practicing conservation in agriculture? Well, with improving your soil health, it really helps with the aggregation of the soil to make larger particles. And what that does is really diminishes erosion. And this year has been phenomenal. Um, with all the soil that's been in the ditch and all over my house and everywhere. And it was because we got, uh, what, that blizzard, what, uh, December 23rd, and winds were 50 to 60 miles an hour and it blew everywhere. Now, if you had better soil health or you covered the soil with either residue or um, you know, cover crops, that would have held the soil down. Another thing that happens when you have good soil health and good aggregation is water can infiltrate into that soil very, very quickly. And what that helps the farmer with is not only you get less ponding and runoff is that you can get into the field sooner and usually uh, three to four days. We're gonna be doing more and more research to figure that out, but um, farmers have been seeing that and so have researchers. The other thing, we're gonna talk a little bit about compaction. And when you have those aggregates in the soil, they act like mini columns in the soil, one on top of each other, and they help hold up the weight of equipment. So not only can water get through the soil quickly, but you can also hold up equipment better. So you can get into that field a lot sooner. So I, I wanna kind of touch a little bit on one word you used quite a bit there, um, aggregation. So can you give us maybe a little bit more detail on what aggregation is, how we actually promote aggregation? 
Well, okay, so aggregation is taking the sand, silt, and clay that's in your soil, and with the microbes that are there, they give off a sticky substance, and also hyphae give, it can physically, you know, like if you look at fungi, like say in the back of your fridge, and you see all those little hairs coming off of that, that can actually hold soil particles together too. So with the microbiology, it holds these particles together. And what, what that does is it protects organic matter inside. So it can't be used for the microbes as food. Um, it, and it, it aggregates the soil. We call them little peds, but nobody goes around saying, Hey, how's your peds? You know, so. <laughs> um, and so obviously we're, so we're basically trying to glue soil particles together into different size chunks is the way I, I kind of think about it, right? Yes. We want some big ones, some little ones, some ones in the middle, uh, the bigger ones promote soil actually going through the system, smaller, you know, soil aggregation actually helps hold more water to it. So a nice mix is usually really important. So, um, so just to kind of go back to the conversation we have with my dad, and we talked about this switch from a moldboard plow to a chisel plow. Um, mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that he said that he really liked that move is because he didn't like seeing soil in the ditch. So can you maybe talk to us just a little bit about how can um, that switch from a moldboard plow to the chisel plow uh, actually help with that aggregation? Yes, and you're right about the different size aggregates. So the longer you are in no-till and the more you back off your tillage, let's say no-till is not quite right for you, but to back off your tillage, the larger those aggregates can become. Tillage just physically tears apart the aggregates. And so your soil gets to be more individual particles and you get more small pores in your soil. If you have aggregates, you get the large pores and the small ones, like you had said. So with moldboard plow, it's one of the most aggressive pieces of equipment that are out there. And it takes that soil and physically turns it all the way over. Now, this isn't very good for microbes because the microbes in the top, you know, two, four, depending on your soil, up to six inches need oxygen. And when you put them down into the soil upside down, now they're in an area that they don't have as much oxygen. And a lot of times they will just die off. So farmers will say, you know, when I moldboard plow this field and then I plowed it again a year or two later, the residue was the same color as it was when it went down. And the reason why is you didn't have the microbes to break it down. They weren't living down there. And so it's a, a total inversion of the soil. And that's the only piece of equipment that does that. Now, chisel plow, it comes in with the shanks and points. And depending how it's set up, can do different things to the soil. It can be more aggressive or less aggressive. It can leave more residue or turn more soil over and incorporate that residue. So some people have a very aggressive chisel plow that by the time you're planting, you're down to 20% residue. Others will have a chisel plow that still maintains 40% residue. And so chisel plow has a, a wide definition. And there are a number of different types of equipment, right? You know, so the, one of the words, again, that I'm going to pick up on here is you use the word aggressive a number of times um, and that the chisel plow had options. It could be more aggressive, less aggressive, um, but it kind of seems like the mobile plow, you basically have one setting, super aggressive. <laughs> uh, 
So I, I'm kind of curious, could you talk maybe about the different implements? Because, um, you know, my dad used a disc when I was growing up, then he switched over to, you know, the no-till approach. So I've seen a number of things, but obviously you've worked with a number of things too. I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on more aggressive, less aggressive pieces of equipment. Um, and then maybe why someone would choose one approach over over another. Well, yes. Um, before there was just mainly a moldboard plow, and then we had the disc. There's been a cultivator along the way, uh, kind of a different one. Um, and chisel plow came around in the 60s. Since the 60s, wow, we have almost any, if you can dream a type of equipment, we have it. We even have some now that you can raise and lower the chisel plow to do different depth tillage. And you can also do that with aggressiveness with your um, vertical till. So it's it's pretty exciting, all the new things that are coming out. So I really want farmers to look at what they have and if it's really doing the job that they think it is. I think some of us, we kind of get stuck into patterns. And so we were a chisel plow for a long time. Then the disc gripper came and everybody's, oh, I like that. And so they've been doing that. But a disc gripper is very, very aggressive. It has very deep shanks. You need a lot of horsepower to pull that. And it has the discs on it. And you asked about discs. Discs are very damaging to soil structure, one of the worst ones for soil structure. Think about a road being built. What do you always see parked at the side of the road there? It's a disc. And the reason why is because it's really good at breaking apart all that aggregation and making single particles of the soil again so that they, they settle down and make a really good road. That's what we want. We don't want the heaving and stuff like that with the road. Um, but in the field, you don't want a roadbed. That is, that's not good for plant growth. It's not good for water infiltration, uh, getting air into the soil. And on a little side note, air is very important. And the, think about our soybeans and that they have rhizobium. You know, the little nodules are full of bacteria. That bacteria needs oxygen. If you don't have oxygen two, three inches into your soil, you will not have rhizobium or nodulation there either. So we, we really want a lot of oxygen into the soil as well. Right, right. You're talking about a, the, the balance um, that you learn about in, you know, your intro to soils course, right? Where <laughs> you got to have water, you got to have available water, you got to have organic matter, you got to have soil particles, but you've also got to have air. You've got to have that air exchange because plants, you know, they don't just give out gases from their leaves. They give out gases from their roots as well. And you're talked about mm -hmm. the bacteria needing stuff. So yeah, it's really important that you, you find that balance and we don't push things in one direction or another. We don't need the roadbed, but we don't need the other option either. It's It's gotta be this thing in the middle. Um, right. So when someone's considering a change between, you know, okay, I've been doing maybe a chisel plow and I, I've got it set on the lowest settings, but now I'm kind of thinking about something else. What are the types of things that they might want to consider? Um, what would help them make a choice? Um, and if they were to want to actually test that choice, how could they actually attest their assumptions? You know, one of the things I'm thinking of um, is people leaving more residue on their soil. Well, then you get uh, cooler soil temperatures and you are, can't quite get in as early, or that might be the assumption. So I'm curious, you know, what are the ways that people could approach that? Well, like we mentioned, there's a lot of different equipment out there. And with the chisel plow, let's say you don't have the economics right now to go to a whole new piece of equipment. 
What you could do with the chisel plow is get rid of anything that has a twisted shank on it or a very wide shank and go with something more narrower, um, like a mool knife and start getting used to the heavier residue. And now residue in itself can be awesome in the way or above a corn seed can be a real pain in the rump and we call it trash then. <laughs> so one of the pieces of equipment that I like is uh, strip till. And the reason why is it only does tillage on a third of the field. It tills a 10 inch path that you would plant right back into and then leaves two thirds of the field or you know, in between those rows totally untouched. So you have the no-till, full-till marriage. And now with strip till, it can be as cheap or as expensive as you want it. Uh, I just was talking to one of the dealers and he said that he can make a 12 row 30 inch one for $30,000. I can also find that for you at $210,000. So it depends what kind of bells and whistles you want on there. And if you want the fertilizer card on there, which is one of the biggest benefits to strip till is you can apply your fertilizer at the same time you're stripping. So in terms of strip tillage, actually, I just got a quick, you know, just got a question here that, uh, you know, I've been looking at is, you know, you talked about you can make it as expensive or as cheap as you want it, but also in terms of aggressiveness, you know, when we're looking at only tilling that certain area, are there ones that are more aggressive that maybe we need to stay away from versus some that are less aggressive that might better fit what you're looking at doing? Yes, definitely. Um, there's all sorts of strip till machines out there and they have a whole range of their aggressiveness. Some of them don't have a shank. Let's start off what they do have. They have a cutting coulter up front, cuts the residue. Then they have trash whippers or residue managers that push the residue to the side. Then they have a shank that you can put down your P and K and even some of your nitrogen. And then they have berming discs that grab that soil and make a nice berm, usually about two inches tall and eight to 10 inches wide. Now there's different equipment out there that you could put on. So you could put, take out the shank altogether and have double coulters. What's nice about that is it can go on sands. It can go in the spring. Um, you know, shanks in the spring are not my favorite thing. It's a good way to compact and smear the soil, but it gives you flexibility if you could take that shank out and put in double coulters. Then there's um, where you can make it less aggressive. And usually I, I talk about those ones when I head west into the Dakotas where they're really have a lot less rainfall than we do. And they're trying to conserve moisture all year round. Then we talk about the ones that are very, they make a smaller berm and they make a smaller path and they don't turn over as much soil. In Minnesota, since we are very fond of our equipment and our chisel plows and, and disc grippers, having an aggressive strip till machine is not a bad idea. It, it helps the farmer feel, it helps that transition time where there's less anxiety. Uh, when you see that nice black berm, you know your seed's going to grow into that. So it depends who they are, what crops are growing. You know, somebody says, well, what's the best piece of equipment out there? Oh, it, it, you're going to get the university answer of it depends. You know, it, it, it depends on a lot of different things. So usually farmers have to call me one-on-one -on -one, and then we talk through what they already own, what their row spacing is, what their crop rotation is if they have hills, if they're on flat soil, if they're on sands, if they're on clays. I mean, there's a lot of different things to talk about and figure out. And, you know, who's going to inherit this land after you? Do you have kids that are taking over? Do you have another farm family that you're thinking of selling to? Or are you going to sell to the highest bidder? Then that, that leads to all different um, outcomes. 
Right, right. So do you follow up those conversations with those farmers? You know, hey, here's how you could test it. You know, we've walked through your options. Um, you know, if you're seeing this, maybe try that, come back to me. Do you do, you do those types of follow-ups or on-field or on-farm kind of testing? Yes, we usually have a soil pit out there at some time. Uh, but for testing equipment, it, the best thing is to, to rent something or if you're interested in what a neighbor has, see if you can get some, some done. Now, don't do the entire field because you have nothing to compare it to. I don't even like half and half of the field. That's not a good comparison, especially when you're looking at buying equipment that's thousands of dollars. You don't want to just hope that that was a difference out there. And so we like to do strips within there and then make those strips as wide as your combine. So you can pick them up on the yield monitor. You know, if you have a, a, let's say you found a six foot or a six row strip tiller, but your combine is 12 rows and you're going out there, you'll never pick it up. And if, if there was a yield hit or help. So make sure that those strips are as wide as your combine, if not a little wider and as wide as your planter. There's another thing. When we've done our tillage research, what we found is if you're doing different kinds of tillage, you have different kinds of um, um, seed beds, right? And you don't want your planter hanging half, half into chisel plow and half into uh, a harder soil like strip till. It, it doesn't do well. When we're, when we're looking at strip tillage here, I guess this is another question that uh, comes up. You know, what are, what are the needs in terms of, you know, is it precision ag uh, needed for this? You know, there are concerns about missing that strip, you know, when you're trying to hit something that's eight, 10 inches wide, you know, even, even with some of that uh, new technology and the skill level of some of our farmers, that could still be a bit of a demand. Is there, is there a method of doing that where it's easier uh, if you don't have precision ag, because there are still some guys around here who don't have the GPS units on the tractors, is there a method and, and how would you recommend going about that? Well, yeah, there's a, a different answers for that one too. It would be best if they did have RTK that they could you know, get right back on there, especially with the planter on top of there. Now, it won't affect your beans very much because they really can compensate, but your corn... Um, We've done research with this that it's if it's off the berm towards the edge of the berm, it is going to be much cooler underneath that residue, and you can um, get about a five percent yield decrease. And they found that too in Illinois. And but not all the years would I find that. Sometimes there was no hit at all. It totally depends on the weather. If it's warm and a great growing season, you'll see no yield hit. But if you are off that berm in a cold, wet year, yes, it's like almost going into no-till. So RTK is usually the best for that. If um, And you really need your AB lines lined up in the fall because then the planter actually follows it pretty good in the spring um, because of the, the softer soil, it kind of rides in there nice. But the fall getting it lined up is, it is important. Sure, sure. And so you, you're kind of moving into an, another piece or you're bringing up a couple of uh, ideas that came up in my conversation or in our conversation with my dad last time. Um, we talked about no-till 
and we talked about the fact that uh, the thing that he felt he missed the most out of that was handling his compaction. He didn't have guidance systems back then. Uh, he didn't have RTK systems. He was doing his best, but he didn't have everything quite measured out right. And he felt like he really struggled with the compaction issue. Um, is this a common issue that you see in a, in a no-till approach? Um, and if it is, uh, how have you heard of people kind of addressing that issue? Did your Does your dad use cover crops? He did not back then, nope. Okay. I think cover crops have given us a lot more options on how to um, transition faster into no-till without those four or five years where you're like, yikes. Um, it's helped build soil structure faster so that all the benefits that no-till gives you, you get in a few years versus four or five. Another thing with using cover crops is you can put in the tap roots that can get down there and break it apart or even clovers are really good at that as well. And with uh, no-till as well, controlling your traffic is gonna be much, much more important. Um, in compaction, remember that almost 80% of the compaction happens on the first pass. So when you're unloading on the go, you wanna have that grain cart so that it's following the old combine tracks. The combine is something that you can't really um, manipulate. That's the size you got, you can't get much bigger, you know. And you go, you use those as your tram lines. And then you have the grain cart, if it's gonna fill up on the side, go in the old ones, cause it already put down 80% of the compaction. And then when you're done loading, you go to the end of the field and take the headlands back. You don't go at a diagonal. Every spring I'm up in the airplane and I can find those diagonals everywhere. I can find um, your planter tracks, your tillage tracks, your combine tracks. I know if you combine at an angle, it does not go away. It is always there. And if you have a drone, it's a perfect chance to go see your fields. There are some years I have an extreme difficulty trying to find a field that's just all green without any wheel tracks in it. Wheel tracks last a long time. Yeah. So again, I'm going to come back to a couple things you talked about. Uh, first, the clarification. Um, can you talk about what compaction actually is and the physical processes that are going on when things are compacted? Well, compaction simply is the loss of pore space. So you had alluded to that in a soil, you want about half sand, silt, and clay, and the other half of the soil is going to be pore space. And of that pore space, half of that is um, going to be uh, moisture and the other half is gonna be dry air. And what happens when you take a piece of equipment over a field is that you lose the pore space and you can't squish out water. So you lose air space. You take out that air, you end up with a lot wetter soil with a higher bulk density. And it's a perfect medium for a lot of root diseases that we have. Gotcha. And then the the other thing I wanted to go back on, you you said it a couple of times. Um, the the first four to five years of no till in these, I think I believe you said the word yikes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> can you describe what the four to five years of yikes is for people who might be a little bit hesitant about no till? It's usually around year three that you're going to get a, a residue buildup that your planter can't handle. And I am not a purist on any piece of equipment, even going to a no-till system. If year three or four, you just have so much residue out there then take a vertical tillage equipment, some sort of coulter cart and go up there and, you know, 
uh, cut it up into small pieces and let the soil get on there and help with breakdown. Because our planters, you know, they, <laughs> they do have some limitations. Um, with no-till though too, there's, it doesn't mean you just quit tilling. Like last year, you remember it was, or the year before it was so wet and a lot of people did not get their fall tillage done. And so the main question I got around February, March is, well, maybe I'll just try no-till. It's like my first question to them was, do you have a chopping head on your combine? Because if you do, you just made a huge mat and I would not try no-till because you'll be one of those people say, I tried it once and it did not work. And it was because of your combine. Um, people who do no-till and even strip till, they combine and their stalks, their corn stalks are about you know, 12, 15, even up to 20 inches tall. And that keeps all that residue up off the ground. So that soil does help warm up. So there's more, like I'm sure your dad found out, there's, there's a learning curve. There's things that you got to figure out. But luckily, there's a lot of people doing this now. And there's mentoring programs out there that they can get to and sign up for. And, you know, there's, there's a lot more information about it. Yeah, tell, tell me more about this mentoring thing. I'm, I'm very curious. If you want to find experienced soil health farmers in your area, there's uh, farm maps. And that's by SINRAM, C-I-N-R-A-M. And they, it's an application process. You put your name in there and, and help you find somebody that is doing what you want to be doing that can help you out. All the people that have signed up for it have agreed to be mentors. And, if, and also, if you're doing this already and you got a really good handle on it, yeah, sign up as a mentor. Yeah, the mentor process um, for farmers, we've, there's a number of organizations that do it. Uh, Practical Farmers of Iowa is a really good connection one from where I uh, grew up and went to college. Um, we've got other ones down here in Southeast Minnesota too, just local groups. So mentoring is a, is a really big deal in agriculture. And also the Minnesota Soil Health Coalition, that's uh, run by farmers. And yes, they're really good at that as well. Yes, absolutely. So before we hop into maybe some other topics, Nathan, do you have any other uh, direct questions, maybe about no-till ag or, or some of the things that we've talked about already? You know, one of the things that I've always been kind of curious on is, you know, for those of us who typically have to make the mistake first before we learn something, if you are in no-till and you've got compaction issues, how would you go about addressing that? I know you talked a little bit about, you know, running some tillage in there, but what are some of the best ways to address some of those concerns? Well, when you're looking at residue management, that's vertical till, you want to keep it really shallow. Now for compaction, you need to know the depth of the compaction because the more tillage you do, the more you're going to break apart those aggregates and the deeper your compaction potential is. And if you want to know your compaction potential, look at how deep your ruts are. And I bet that's to the depth of your tillage. Um, sometimes we go deeper, but that's usually your depth of tillage is right where you sink to. So what you want to do for compaction is find out the depth that you are compacted at. Uh, take a probe, take a tile, spade out there and find out where that layer is, because it's not going to be probably any deeper than 10 inches. And if you've been chisel plowing, say for 20 years, you're probably going to have one between six and eight inches. And it will probably be more in the low lying areas versus up on top of the hills where it stays the wettest because compaction happens on wet soils. If you had a dry soil, you can go out there with you know, 40 ton axle and not compact the soil. But if it's wet, 
you can put compaction down two, three, even four feet into the soil. You're not going to be able to get rid of the four foot compaction. Um, the way that we get rid of that is over time, if your soils crack when it dries, that's doing tillage for you, deep tillage. Now, if you have to do the tillage, you want to take it the straightest shank you can get. So a subsoiler with a straight shank, not a bent leg and not any curve in it, because that will bring soil up. What you want to do is just slice through the soil, pop through that compaction, and the roots will find it. And then you got to start controlling your traffic. So be careful on your patterns out there. Mm -hmm. um, so we've talked about a number of approaches here and in depth on tillage and whatnot. Um, from your experience and some of the things that we've seen at the university, um, what are some of the other options that people have for soil conservation, conservation in general, and agriculture, and and maybe how do those uh, play in maybe alongside a tillage approach, uh, things of that nature? Well, let's see. The best way to help with economics and also help with the environment is reducing how many trips you're going to make across the field. That saves you fuel and time. And also with nitrogen to put it down so you're not losing it back up to the atmosphere. Um, that's just money going back up. And usually it's as the greenhouse gas. So we got to be careful there. Um, so by, like I said before, it's kind of going to be different for every farmer. But the guidelines I give is that you wanna reduce the number of passes that you make in their field. And anytime they can make a piece of equipment that can do two things at once, I'm all for it. The other thing is, is decrease the aggressiveness, the, the amount that you turn the soil over or mix it up. And, and that will also help on fuel usage too, and time, and the depth that you go. So when we were talking about subsoiling, don't take that 20 inch shank and just rip when you have a six inch problem. You're going to set it about an inch deeper at seven inches and it will pop through it really well. So those three things, the number of passes, the aggressiveness and the depth and add cover crops where you can. Sometimes they're difficult to add in. Mother nature changes our plans all the time, but to get those in there, they really do a lot of beneficial things to the soil that we're just learning more and more about. I mean, only 1% of all the bacteria in the soil can be grown in a laboratory. And so we we're learning at leaps and bounds, but honestly, we're still, you know, in newborns with this, but it's exciting. I mean, you know, the other thing about bringing them in the lab is that sometimes it takes two bacteria species together to do one thing. Well, how do you know which two? I mean, in a cup of soil, you have 9 billion microbes, which ones are working together. And it's, it's a phenomenal world below. And we're just starting to learn more and more about it. Um, you know, Jody, I, I thought this might be a really good chance um, for you to maybe talk about some of the field work that you've got coming up uh, and some of the other things uh, that we, you know, we as University of Minnesota, but also University of Minnesota Extension have to offer coming up this year. Well, uh, I've been getting so many questions about compaction. And if you look around, there's not a lot of uh, information. A lot of our information that we have is from the 90s. We had some of the best compaction gurus in the world living in Minnesota even, um, but they all retired. So 
What we're going to do is a soil compaction conference. It's going to be held June 22nd and 23rd, and they're going to be like five hour days. So we hopefully don't tax you too much on Zoom. And we're going to bring in experts from around the world and the US and Canada even. And I'm really excited about it. So you can follow me on Twitter. I'm Soil Lorax. And you can uh, email me at dejon003 at umn.edu. And I will, as soon as I get this more finalized, I'll be posting it on Twitter and other social media. And it will start showing up at the university websites. Yeah, I, I really appreciate your time, Jody, and your insight. Um, and, and I hope this has been a, a fun time for you on this on this podcast. Yes, definitely. I enjoy these. Thank you. Thanks again to Jody for joining us on the podcast here today. As always, if you'd like more information, go to extension.umn.edu. And you can find a lot of our information here at the CROPS uh, website there, as well as going to extension.umn.edu backslash local if you'd like to connect with a local extension educator who could either put you in touch with myself, Mike, or Jody as well. As always, if you'd like, if you have any ideas or would like to recommend someone to us, please feel free to reach out at ndrewitz at umn.edu.